Our educator and presenter today is Dr. Lars Bode, who is joining us from La Jolla, California. Dr. Bode is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. He is the Endowed Chair of Collaborative Human Milk Research and the Director of the Larson Rosenquist Foundation Mother Milk Infant Center of Research Excellence, also at UC San Diego. Dr. Bode leads the field of research focused on human milk oligosaccharides and how they impact health and development. Recently, his research also expanded to include aspects of the coronavirus pandemic related to breast milk and feeding. The learning objectives for his presentation today are, summarize ongoing research into the bioactive components of human milk, describe the evidence for use of prebiotics and in infant feeding. Dr. Bode, you may begin your presentation. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much, Jessica, for the introduction and for, for having me uh, as part of this uh, educational webinar. I'm going to talk about uh, human breast milk composition with a specific focus on human milk oligosaccharides. So uh, let's dive right in and talk about uh, human milk in general. What is in human milk? What makes it so powerful? And if you look at the different components of human milk, of course, there's water as the you know, primary component, but there is many other components as well. So we have carbohydrates, lactose as the milk sugar, and then HMOs or human milk oligosaccharides that we'll be focusing on throughout this webinar. Uh, we have lipids in human milk, and they come in a very complex uh, system called the milk fat globule, surrounded by membrane that has many bioactive components within the membrane, and then the lipids themselves are tucked in to this uh, globule and are delivered in this very specific uh, way. Uh, we have proteins, of course, in human milk, and some of these proteins have specific functions. Uh, for example, they participate in uh, protein digestion, so they are proteases themselves that then chop the milk proteins into smaller fragments that themselves have different activities. So you can see there's this uh, ladder of uh, protein digestion and cleaving out active fragments throughout the intestinal tract and really delivery of these active components at different times and different spaces. Then human milk is not uh, just a, um, a, a list of different ingredients. There are active life components in human milk including immune cells, epithelial cells, bacteria are found in human milk, and not just mastitis when you have pathogens, but really there are live potentially good bacteria living in human milk. Uh, together with immune cells come immune factors uh, like cytokines, chemokines, of course, immunoglobulins, uh, antibodies that come through human milk and potentially protect the infant from disease. In addition, we have growth factors, hormones, and really a whole myriad of different things in human milk that we're still trying to catalog and identify what they're really doing in human milk, not just for the infant, but potentially also for the mother. Now let's talk about human milk oligosaccharides, the third most abundant component in human milk after lactose and lipids. And very often, the amount of oligosaccharides exceeds the amount of total protein in human milk. And uh, these carbohydrates or oligosaccharides are non-nutritive, uh, so they're not participating in providing direct energy to the infant, like lactose, the other human milk sugar. Uh, in fact, human milk oligosaccharides are indigestible, reach the uh, small intestine and eventually the colon, virtually undigested and intact. Part of that is absorbed and we find it in the systemic circulation, in the blood, and all the way in the urine. So there is oligosaccharides flushing the baby 
flushing the entire system. They not, not only are present in the, in the gut. Um, so they're really unique to human milk. Uh, if you see the comparison here between human milk and cow's milk, uh, about 100 to 1,000 fold more oligosaccharides in human milk, and the structures are quite different as well. We have about 150, 200 different oligosaccharides in human milk. Uh, most of them are fucosylated, and we'll get into that uh, in the next slide. Uh, whereas in cow milk, hardly any fucose in cow milk oligosaccharides, maybe only 40 structures or so compared to the 150, 200. So just between human milk and bovine milk, huge differences in total amount and in uh, composition. So talking about composition, how do these oligosaccharides actually look like? Uh, oligosaccharides are complex sugars that are built of five basic building blocks or monosaccharides. And uh, you see, we give each of these monosaccharides here a, a, a little symbol to make it easier to talk about oligosaccharides. And really, five building blocks are glucose, galactose, N-acetylglucosamine, fucose, and then silic acid. So depending on how we build these different building blocks together in different linkages, we get different oligosaccharides that can be fairly simple. So everything from putting three of those building blocks together uh, to being extremely complex where we have 30 and more of these building blocks uh, uh, put together in different linkages. And that really expands the chemical space of human milk oligos tremendously. And you see there's a few examples here on this slide. Uh, if you want to uh, read more about that, uh, we published a review paper here in Glycobiology 2012 that is still you know, one of the most cited, cited papers uh, in this field and gives a nice overview of what these oligosaccharides are and uh, what they potentially do. Then uh, when we talk about human milk oligosaccharides today, uh, many times we talk about 2-focosylactose because that is currently one of the oligosaccharides that we find now in infants. It contains HMOs and then in fine print it says, well, it really contains 2-focosylactose. Now, what is this 2-focosylactose or 2-FL? It's one of the simple human milk oligosaccharides, a trisaccharide that consists of glucose, galactose, and fucose in this particular alpha-1-2 linkage. It is the most abundant human milk oligosaccharides in the milk of many women. And uh, we have to say that because there are some women that do not make any of this 2-focosylactose. And we haven't really fully understood why that is. We call that the secretors that make a lot of 2-focosylactose and the non-secretors that make hardly any of it. Um, Worldwide, uh, approximately 20% of women do not make this uh, this particular oligosaccharide. So these are the non-secretors, and that is purely genetically determined. And we don't really know what this means really for uh, the quality of milk and for infant health. Certainly not the case that you know all of those infants that get milk that doesn't have this oligosaccharide are somewhat at a major disadvantage. That certainly is not the case. Okay, so here's a visualization of different oligosaccharide profiles from different women. Uh, and you see very clearly different subjects here on the x-axis and then concentrations of different oligosaccharides in different colors on the y-axis. You see between different subjects, there is a massive variation. So on the very left side here, you see very low concentrations overall. On the right side, much, much higher concentrations. The colors look very different to the patterns. 
And if we take the same data now and set it at 100% to get the relative abundance of different oligosaccharides, you see there's this dramatic uh, variation between different women, between different subjects. And you can already see there's some clustering going on here towards the left side of this, uh, this graph. Uh, there's something missing there, this dark blue color on the top. Uh, and that's two focus I was talking about earlier that some women do not make this specific oligosaccharide. So that brings us indeed to the genetic drivers of the maternal variation in human milk oligosaccharide secretion and production. And uh, like I said, genetically determined in the sense that there are genes that contribute to the fucosylation of oligosaccharides, namely the secreted gene, which participates or facilitates the alpha-1-2 fucosylation. And then there's the Lewis genes that participate to a certain extent in the alpha-1-3, alpha-1-4 fucosylation. So if we just bring it down to the secretor and the non-secretor, those that make a lot of 2-FL and those that do not make 2-FL, single nucleotide polymorphisms really drive this uh, variation and drive the near absence of 2-focosylactose in some of these milk samples. And that has uh, implications for oligosaccharides overall. It's not just 2-FL that is affected. There are other alpha-1-2 fucosylated oligosaccharides that are different, but it really changes the entire makeup of oligosaccharides. You can imagine one oligosaccharide going up or down in concentration changes the entire uh, map of oligosaccharides because their synthesis is somewhat interconnected. So here you see in a study from uh, Clemens Kunz that was published in 2017 that they look at the total concentration of oligosaccharides between secretors in the dark green and non-secretors in the light green, and non-secretors significantly make less overall uh, oligosaccharides. Uh, the neutral oligosaccharides are also reduced. In fact, fucosylated oligosaccharides are reduced as well, not shown here on the graph. And at the same time, you see that the silated or acidic oligosaccharides are not affected uh, as much between the two different groups. So bottom line here is genetics drive the variation in human milk oligosaccharide composition between mothers. Uh, that has a tremendous effect on 2-fucosylactose concentrations but also affects all the other oligosaccharides because oligosaccharide synthesis is interconnected, is on a shared pathway. So if you reduce one oligosaccharide, something else will pop up or something else will also be reduced depending on where it sits on the pathway. Remarkably, this variation in, uh, in oligosaccharide composition based on the secretor status is different in different parts of the world. So if we look at uh, Latin America, here South America, side here in Peru, or also in Mexico, there's hardly any non-secretors. So most women make a lot of 2 focus In other parts of the world, the African continent, you find up to 30, 35% of the women that do not make this specific oligosaccharide. So they're the non-secretors. And again, why that is, why this has developed in different areas of the world differently, what the benefits are, what the, diff the uh, disadvantages are of being a secretor or non-secretor is not fully understood. It could very well be that there was an evolutionary selective force that happened hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago or longer, and that selection pressure is no longer there. So there's really no an advantage or disadvantage. Uh, but of course, that's very difficult uh, to study. So we haven't really fully understood why there is such huge variation in oligosaccharide composition. But bottom line is, if we look at 
human milk oligosaccharides, there is no one, you know, average human milk oligosaccharide composition that is natural, healthy, and uh, normal. That does not exist. So there is no normal uh, HMO composition. We know that genetics determine HMO composition, but other factors have also an effect. So we've seen here in a study that we published uh, last year that if you have, uh, this is a small pilot study where uh, women were their own uh, uh, control subject where we put a woman either on a high galactose or high glucose diet or switched from a, a high carbohydrate to a high fat diet. And it's difficult to see on this graph. So individual oligosaccharides in this graph here don't really seem to be affected much. But if you then group them together, you can see that, for example, in the galactose glucose crossover, that HMO bond fucose goes up, uh, goes down, sorry, uh, to a certain extent uh, in the glucose group. And uh, the HMO bound silic acid goes down in the group that is on a high fat diet. So uh, you see, in addition to genetics, there are factors like diet. Uh, we've seen this in other publications, diet and exercise uh, also play a role here. So we're now trying to understand what modifiable factors there are to change oligosaccharide composition. Now, when I say that oligosaccharide composition is, is very different between different women, we have seen that oligosaccharide composition in a very small period of time, short period of time, over a course of a day, over a course of a week, is remarkably constant. So not shown on this slide here, but we have data that shows that within a week or a couple of weeks, uh, if you take a sample on Monday of, first, uh, of the first week or on Friday of the second week, the oligosaccharide composition is almost identical. However, it changes over the longer course of lactation. And that's what's shown here. Now we're looking at month postpartum. So from one month to 24 months or two years postpartum, there is dramatic changes. So most of the oligosaccharides decrease in concentration. And uh, there's a few oligosaccharides like 3FL uh, that increases over the course of lactation. Again, why that is, if there is any physiological relevance to that, um, we haven't fully understood yet. So, so how human milk oligosaccharides are synthesized and what drives the variation still remains to be elucidated. So key takeaways for this first part is human milk oligosaccharides represent a major bioactive component of human breast milk third most abundant uh, component in human milk after lactose and lipids. And the maternal variation, <clears throat> excuse me, the maternal variation in HMO composition is driven by a variety of factors, mainly by genetics, so that makes it really uh, strong. And you can see these differences between secretors and non-secretors, uh, which we find is different in different parts of the world. But also diet plays a role, exercise plays a role. They change over a longer period of time and there are still many questions to be answered. Now, the question is, why are we so interested in what drives human milk oligosaccharide composition? You know, what is the ideal target? Where do we want oligosaccharides to be? What is the ideal concentration? Does it even exist? And that triggers the next question, the next part of this presentation. What are the effects of human milk oligosaccharides? What do they actually do? Do we want to enrich for certain oligosaccharides because some oligosaccharides may do better things or other things than, uh, than other oligosaccharides. So, so what's the target here? What's the oligosaccharides actually do? 
Well, we do know that oligosaccharides promote gut and immune health in the infants, and potentially there are also effects for mom, and we're not going to go into that much uh, in this presentation, but there might be also benefits for mom making these oligosaccharides and, and really contributing to um, uh, breast health, uh, either during breastfeeding or beyond. So when we talk about gut health and immune health, uh, we see that human milk oligosaccharides have what we call pre many prebiotics, so they just serve as metabolic substrates for some uh, potentially beneficial bacteria, and uh, so they get eaten up by the bacteria, and that's the end of it. Um, but that's not the full story. We also have seen that oligosaccharides have the opposite effect. They have antimicrobial effects, meaning that for certain not desired uh, bacteria for certain pathogens, human milk oligosaccharides may actually stop the growth of these pathogens or kill them altogether. So in addition to having prebiotic effects, they also might have antimicrobial effects. And you can imagine that if they have antimicrobial effects, then you don't want these oligosaccharides to be eaten up by the good guys. You still want them to a certain extent available to actually uh, hit the bad guys as well. In addition to these effects directly on microbes, so either good guys or bad guys, we also see that oligosaccharides have direct effects on the host in parts independent of microbes. So we see that if you expose epithelial cells, for example, to oligosaccharides, uh, you see that it all healing pathways and the response of those cells. And the same is true for immune cells as well. Uh, we see that cytokine production is altered when we expose immune cells to uh, oligosaccharides, and that's different with different oligosaccharides. Okay, let's go a little bit deeper into uh, the prebiotic effects and how that uh, then uh, alters uh, the health of the infant gut. So undigested human milk oligosaccharides, so they go through the small intestine, are not digested by host, by baby enzymes, uh, make it all the way into the gut, and that's where they serve to a certain extent as metabolic substrates for beneficial bacteria, and that then uh, forms the basis for improved gut health um, uh, for the baby. So um, that it has been described quite a bit for certain bifidobacteria strains, um, and uh, there the notion is that some bifidobacteria can uh, metabolize all of the oligosaccharides, uh, so they have the machineries to, to really break down every single linkage and every single building block and make full use of these oligosaccharides as an energy source. Uh, but there is then other bifidos that uh, utilize only some oligosaccharides, leave others intact, and you can imagine that then those intact leftover oligosaccharides can have other effects, like I said, as antimicrobials or directly affecting epithelial cells and, um, and potentially immune cells. It's not just bifido. Uh, there is other uh, strains of, for example, Bacteroides or Lactobacillus that can also utilize human milk oligosaccharides, and some remarkably uh, well, in the sense that uh, they can utilize a lot of the different strains, uh, a lot of the different oligosaccharides. Uh, and again, some only go after specific oligosaccharides and leave others intact. And this really gives us a huge opportunity to develop specific uh, probiotics or symbiotics where we design or select uh, probiotics depending on what kind of oligosaccharides can be utilized. So the probiotics have their beneficial effects, 
but then at the same time leave some of the oligosaccharides in human milk intact so that those oligosaccharides now can have other effects. And uh, the, the probiotic or, or prebiotic effects of oligosaccharides have been nicely documented in multiple different studies where we see that there is associations between different oligosaccharides and microbial communities in the infant gut, but potentially also in the mammary gland. So we again know that human milk is not sterile. There is a, uh, it's a niche for certain bacteria. There is a milk microbiome. It's not just pathogens uh, that lead to mastitis. There is healthy microbes in human milk. And since they live together with the oligosaccharides already in human milk, you can imagine that those bacteria and the oligosaccharides already start interacting while they're sitting in the milk together. So uh, lots of studies find uh, associations between oligosaccharides in human milk and then either the microbial communities in the milk or in the infant gut. And many of those studies are not 100% conclusive. And uh, many also look just at a very shallow level of um, you know, either diversity measures or uh, on a 16S high level uh, um, inventory of what kind of bacteria are there, but really functional associations are still lacking in the field. So that's the prebiotic effects. Uh, let's move on um, to the antimicrobial effects. So this is a study that we published um, uh, 2017, so almost five years ago where the postdoc in the lab back then uh, pulled out a few pathogens from the minus 80 freezer and wanted to see what happens if I grow these pathogens in the presence or absence of uh, different human milk oligosaccharides. And you see here by different colors in the graph, uh, different pathogens, and then uh, the dotted lines is the pathogen growth without oligosaccharides, and the solid line is the pathogen growth with oligosaccharides. And this dark red line on the bottom here really stands out. That's group B streptococcus in the presence of human milk oligosaccharides. And uh, you see by the flat line that group B streptococcus simply does not grow in the presence of human milk oligosaccharides. And uh, we've seen this over and over again. Other groups have confirmed this in the meantime as well, that human milk oligosaccharides really inhibit the growth of group B streptococcus. And we've since identified uh, which oligosaccharides are most effective here. LNT seems to play a role. Uh, we've also used the transposon mutant library to identify the target on group B streptococcus, which seems to be a glycophil transferase. And most importantly, and what I find quite uh, impressive, that the oligosaccharides in human milk synergize with commercially available antibiotics, meaning that you need less antibiotic uh, to inhibit the growth of group B streptococcus in the presence of human milk oligosaccharides. So a true synergistic effect, effect between antibiotics and human milk oligosaccharides, which of course in, the, in times of emerging antibiotic resistance crisis uh, could be a huge opportunity to use oligosaccharides uh, as antimicrobials in addition to um, antibiotics. Um, we also see that uh, oligosaccharides have a direct effect on immune cells. And this could be in the gut, where we have the highest concentration of human milk oligosaccharides, but also the highest density of immune cells. Uh, many, many immune cells are located in the gut and uh, sense of what's going on in the intestine and then transfer that, that information back to the, um, uh, to, the, to the entire system. 
So, so there's a lot of um, uh, sampling going on and immune stimulation going on in the gut. And that's exactly where we have human milk oligosaccharides present to interact with immune cells and immune cell receptors. And there is many different immune cell receptors known to interact with glycans, with sugars, and human milk oligosaccharides are, of course, sugars. So we know that there's galactins, for example, there's selectins, there's integrins, um, uh, siglex as well, that interact with different oligosaccharides, and many of those target oligosaccharides look very similar to human milk oligosaccharides. And uh, studies have shown that if you incubate immune cells with different oligosaccharides, that indeed you change um, their cell response and you can change immune responses that way. So for example, the acidic HMO, so that's the ones that contain silic acid, uh, seem to play a role in immune modulatory uh, uh, paths, you know, down-regulation of type two immune responses, inhibit T cell res uh, response. And some of this it has to be taken with a grain of salt because uh, many of those oligosaccharide preps also contain uh, LPS and other immune modulatory component as a contamination. And uh, only a few years ago, uh, people realized that there were contaminations in the oligosaccharide preps, and uh, that might have contaminated some of the literature when it comes to oligosaccharides and immune responses. Now, this is more like on a molecular, on a cellular level, what does this really mean now for infant health? What do we know about different oligosaccharides impacting infant health and not just changing some microbial communities or doing something in tissue culture where we see that there's some receptors going up and down or interacting and immune cell responses changed? What does this actually mean? Do we have any evidence that oligosaccharides do something positive for the infant? And uh, the, probably the strongest evidence that we have is in the preterm infant space. And here, particularly in necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, still uh, one of the most deadly diseases in preterm infants when it comes to the gut. About 5% of very low birth weight infants uh, develop necrotizing enterocolitis with a fairly high mortality rate. And uh, we still don't uh, fully know how necrotizing enterocolitis develops in the first place. There might be multiple different routes to get to the symptom block that we call But inflammation plays a role, uh, intestinal barrier function, integrity breakdown plays a role, and uh, that eventually leads to the devastating uh, symptom block called necrotizing enterocolitis. Uh, what we do know, though, is that preterm infants who are breastfed or receive human milk are at the six to ten times lower risk to develop necrotizing enterocolitis compared to formula-fed infants. So that's a huge difference, of course. And uh, we wanted to know, well, what is it in human milk that contributes to these beneficial effects when it comes to necrotizing enterocolitis? And... Uh, there's multiple different ways of, of how we did that. Uh, I show you a couple of slides here for that. First, we set out in the first meeting, this was before 2008, 2009, we started to test human milk oligosaccharides in a animal model of necrotizing enterocolitis in rats. And we found that oh, oligosaccharides actually have an effect. Not only do they reduce pathology, but they also improve survival of the rat pups, of the rat babies that we induce uh, to develop neck-like symptoms. And we then uh, continued that research and found that it's not all oligosaccharides in human milk, but it's specifically one oligosaccharide called DSLNT 
which stands for lactoantetrose, and the structure is shown here on the right. Now, you know, that's neonatal rats, and uh, people argue that that's not a particular uh, good model to capitulate uh, what neck look like, looks like in the preterm infant. So we, of course, needed to get one step further here and look at, well, how is this, uh, does this even translate to the human preterm infant? So there we developed multiple different cohort studies, uh, first here in the US and Canada, and then also in South Africa, and uh, uh, the most recent one here in the UK, which is published with it, which is cited here, uh, where we recruited moms and their preterm infants, sampled milk about every second day, and then um, uh, looked at what oligosaccharides are in the milk, and does that somehow predict which infant develops neck? And uh, to our surprise, in all three of these studies, so North America, South Africa, and the UK, we found that there was indeed one oligosaccharide different that predicts very well what, uh, whether the infant develops neck or not. And that oligosaccharide was the same oligosaccharide that we found to be protective in the animal model, DSLNT. So in other words, DSLNT protects from necrotizing enterocolitis-like symptoms in the rat model. And if it is in lower concentrations in human milk, then the infant is at higher risk to develop neck. Those two data sets, or those many data sets, really fit nicely together uh, where we have an animal model and then human association studies to see that a specific oligosaccharide really plays a role in protecting an infant from a disease, and in this case, necrotizing enterocolitis. So there, of course, we still need that intervention study to say, well, what happens if we give DSLNT now to infants? Can we protect them from necrotizing enterocolitis? You know, you know I've shown you associations. I show you that this works in rats, but does the intervention actually work in the human preterm infant? And that's something we're working towards right now. Uh, we're trying to source DSLNT and make it available for a larger clinical study to really test uh, and give the ultimate proof that an intervention with this oligosaccharide has an impact on health. Now, we also see that human milk oligosaccharides protect against some infections, uh, diarrheal disease, for example, a huge problem still. Uh, about 2,200 infants uh, and children under the age of five still lost every day uh, in, in the world uh, to diarrheal disease. And uh, we see that human milk oligosaccharides have some effect on, on some of those uh, pathogens that drive diarrheal disease um, as well. The same is true not only for diarrheal disease, but also for infectious agents that affect the respiratory tract um, and uh, also for, for uh, not just for bacteria, but also for viruses. And we've done some work here in the HIV space where we've seen that, yes, higher concentrations of oligosaccharides total is associated with a reduced risk for HIV transmission and mortality risk among HIV-exposed infants. At the same time, if we go a little bit deeper, we see that individual oligosaccharides, if they are at higher concentrations, your risk of transmission actually goes up. So it's not that simple to see all oligosaccharides do the same thing, and if they're higher in concentration, then we have a reduced risk. Overall, that's correct, but individual oligosaccharides, and since they're all different structures, may have different effects on different outcomes. I think that's really key to keep in mind that not all oligosaccharides do the same thing. Um, really structure determines their function and determines their impact on health. 
And that's nicely uh, illustrated here in a paper that we published uh, a couple of years ago in Nature Communications, where a specific pathogen, a rotavirus strain that is um, found in India and mostly affects early neonates uh, in that particular area, so a very specific strain of rotavirus, that uh, we found in the lab, and Sashi Ramani at, at Baylor was really the driving factor here, uh, that individual oligosaccharides would actually increase infectivity of this pathogen. So very counterintuitive, we would think that, well, oligosaccharides somehow reduce pathogen burden. But in this case, for this strain, uh, we found that there is individual oligosaccharides that increase infectivity. And not only do we see this in the lab, if we then take this out to the field and do association studies again, where we recruit moms, infants, analyze the milk, and then associate that with uh, rotavirus infection risk and um, severity, you see the same oligosaccharides stand out as increasing the risk, increasing uh, symptoms. So that was a surprise to us, but uh, fortunately, every challenge comes with an opportunity, and we think that these oligosaccharides might actually help uh, increase the effect, uh, efficacy of the rotavirus vaccines. So uh, if there is a pathogen that thinks can get ahead uh, by abusing and exploiting different oligosaccharides, I think we have a very good handle using those same oligosaccharides now against the pathogen by using that as a booster to uh, vaccines. So you see it's really constantly a battle back and forth, uh, you know, how different pathogens try to get ahead and uh, how science keeps uh, catching up and, and gets ahead of the curve. Okay, so uh, now oligosaccharides are becoming available now in larger quantities, tons really, megatons, individual oligosaccharides, and at very low cost. Um, I can tell you uh, when I did my PhD uh, early 2000s, we did some calculations. What if we wanted to add one of those oligosaccharides to infant formula, what would the uh, box cost in the supermarket? And it was absolutely prohibitive. Uh, the box would cost multiple million dollars if we had done that uh, 15, 20 years ago. So completely unrealistic. But now with all the advances in oligosaccharide synthesis, we are now at a stage where you can walk through the supermarket and you see first infant formula products that indeed say um, contains human milk oligosaccharides. And again, fine print is it contains one, two, or maybe a couple uh, more oligosaccharides, not the entire repertoire. Does it matter? Uh, so in human milk, we have a mixture of, like I said, 150, 200 different compounds, different oligosaccharides. Is that the same as adding one, two, or five different oligosaccharides that we can now synthesize? And in some cases, the answer might be yes. In some cases, individual oligosaccharides may be sufficient to improve a certain health condition like necrotizing androcolitis I showed you earlier. Uh, in many cases, uh, that's not the case. In many cases, we rely on that entire mixture of different oligosaccharides. And you can imagine uh, if it comes to shaping microbial communities, for example, you don't just want one oligosaccharide that is now able to feed a certain bacterial strain or maybe a few bacterial strains, but all the other bacteria like, well, I can't you know, I can't deal with this one oligosaccharide. I need that other oligosaccharide also to thrive. And that might give you some imbalances in uh, microbial community uh, composition. 
So yes, it's not the same to add one oligosaccharide or two uh, compared to having 150, 200 different ones. In some cases it might work, in many other cases it's not sufficient. However, of course, it's the right way forward. And uh, just to give you an example here, uh, where we looked at uh, associations between oligosaccharides and food, se food sensitization, for example. There was not a single oligosaccharide that was associated with uh, food sensitization in this particular study in the child cohort. However, if we did a pattern analysis, uh, so where we take all the oligosaccharides together and see, do, are there any uh, patterns other associated with food sensitization, and that gave us a fairly good uh, uh, estimate. So if we look at all the oligosaccharides together, uh, we might get some ideas of, of uh, how they're linked to certain disease outcomes, again, highlighting that individual oligosaccharides are often not sufficient to drive a specific outcome. Uh, there is uh, data on oligosaccharides and body composition. Many different studies uh, show that there is associations between 2FL and uh, height and weight, for example. Uh, the opposite seems to be true for, for Neo-LMT, uh, where the associations are, are, are negative. Um, what this really means, uh, in some cases, of course, growth and weight uh, can be a disadvantage when we talk about obesity risk. If we talk about malnutrition, it might have completely different implications. So again, different oligosaccharides have different effects. Their ratio plays a role, and the context is very important too. If we talk about uh, human milk oligosaccharides and health in uh, developed countries with high energy burden, if you want, uh, it's very different than talking about oligosaccharides in low middle income countries where malnutrition is prevalent, where we have a lot of pathogens uh, that uh, we're exposed to. So again, different oligosaccharides doing different things. Uh, one size does not, does not fit all. Very interesting data when it comes to infant cognitive development. Uh, can we get our infant smarter by adding oligosaccharides or by breastfeeding um, uh, longer or shorter or differently? And here's data that uh, where we've shown that two focus concentration at one month of age, so measured in mom's milk, associate with infant cognitive development at 24 months, so two years of age. And other studies have shown similar data on 2FL or 6, 6SL, where the exposure early on, so at one month, predicts uh, outcomes, cognitive outcomes at six months or two years or beyond that. So meaning that whatever happens in the first few months of life somehow determines already uh, what happens later on. So one of the key takeaways for this session here, HMOs support the development of gut microbiome and immune system by serving as prebiotics, but also serving as antimicrobials and independent of microbes serving as regulators of immune and epithelial cells. Uh, we have probably the best data currently on HMOs, one specific HMO in the protection against necrotizing endocolitis but there are other intestinal infectious diseases, respiratory infections where oligosaccharides may play a role as well. When it comes to infant growth and development, also food sensitivities, cognitive functions, either individual oligosaccharides are associated or we need that entire mix, this entire blend of oligosaccharides. Um, so overall, HMO composition <clears throat> may be more important uh, than individual oligosaccharides, although for some outcomes, individual oligosaccharides may be sufficient. Uh, 
Okay, so now let's talk about oligosaccharides that we have been infant formula. I mentioned that specific oligosaccharides like 2FL, LNMT, and others are now available and are currently added already to some of the infant formula products. And I'll go through this a little bit faster now um, due to the limited time we have, but just showing you that uh, if you add something like 2FL and NeoLNT in certain concentrations here to infant formula, that your um, the diversity of the microbiome in the infant, for example, is more closely uh, to human milk than it is in the infant formula without the oligosaccharides, although it's still far away from it. Um, and uh, there was some secondary analysis here also for less frequent respiratory infections and uh, less use of antibiotics. Uh, then, in addition to human milk oligosaccharides like 2FL, NeoLNT, and others, uh, previously infant formula companies have also used non-human milk oligosaccharides as prebiotics. So these are your galacto oligosaccharides, your fructo oligosaccharides, inulin, lactulose, polydextrose, all carbohydrates, non-HMO carbohydrates that we do not find in human milk but that may have some similar effects when it comes to some of the benefits of human milk, uh, mainly when it comes to the prebiotic effects of oligosaccharides. So uh, it does change the microbial community to a certain extent, but really if you look a little bit deeper and you look at functional ability of those microbial communities, it's far away from, uh, from human milk. So uh, those non-human milk carbohydrates certainly have not the same functional effects than, uh, than human milk oligosaccharides. Although you can see here that there is uh, some prebiotic uh, effects uh, that change bifidobacteria uh, relative abundance and so on and so forth. In addition to the prebiotic effects of some of those non-HMO prebiotics, uh, there are reports that uh, GOS-4, for example, changes incidence of atopic dermatitis improves that. And there's a few other effects um, where it is claimed that these non-human milk oligosaccharides uh, are somewhat beneficial beyond just uh, serving as limited prebiotics. But they are clearly not the same. So if you look at this study here again, where you compare uh, a formula uh, that contains only galacto-oligosaccharides with a formula that contains 2FL, uh, in different concentrations, the formula with just galacto-oligosaccharides is just very different uh, than the formula with oligosaccharides and certainly very different from, uh, from the breastfed um, effects. Now, what does this all mean for parents, for healthcare providers? Uh, what kind of guidance can we give at this point? Uh, one guidance I would always give is it's very early on, we're in the very early stages of discovery research and discovery, although there is a few products already out in the market that contain human milk oligosaccharides. But please keep in mind that the research on the effects of human milk oligosaccharides and other human milk bioactives is in the very early stages. And we need a lot more research to fully understand what's going on uh, with these oligosaccharides. But I strongly believe that if we have a detailed, deep mechanistic understanding of the effects of different oligosaccharides, uh, it will really give us great opportunities to improve uh, infant health, uh, but also really health of people of all ages, uh, where either the effects in the early stages um, have long-lasting effects, or we can identify effects of oligosaccharides for other age groups as well. 
So lots of opportunities for personalized early life nutrition. Uh, but keep in mind that not every oligosaccharide is the same. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to this. And we need probably more than just one oligosaccharide, to, uh, oligosaccharide than, uh, to, to cover all these different opportunities that are in front of us. So takeaways from the third part is that HMOs uh, like 2FL, NeoNT, and non-HMO prebiotics are currently already added to infant formulas with the claims to support a healthy gut development. And while some of those non-prebiotics provide a variety of health benefits, uh, they're not the same as human milk oligosaccharides. Uh, most of these non-HMO prebiotics are not present in human milk. And keep in mind that we are currently feeding our babies uh, potentially structures that we know are not in human milk and are not really designed to be fed to fungi. Okay, I'll leave you with that. That's the three blocks I wanted to talk about, and I'll take questions from here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Bode. We will now invite you and our audience to ask questions of our presenter. Our first question is, given that maternal diet can influence HMO composition, do you have any recommendations for foods a parent should eat to optimize HMOs? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we get that asked quite a bit. Uh, and the truth is uh, we don't, and that is for two different reasons. One, we don't have enough data to say that if you eat this, then this will affect your uh, oligosaccharide composition in this and this way. We have some early data from both animal studies, but also from human studies. Uh, I showed a couple of those um, where we see that if we change diet to a certain extent, it changes the oligosaccharide composition. Uh, we just actually uh, have a paper in revision that shows that uh, vegan and vegetarian diet has no effect on uh, on oligosaccharide composition, so that might uh, uh, help people uh, that are on those diets. But the but the other truth to the story is that what does it mean to optimize oligosaccharide composition? Um, I think we we don't even know at this point uh, what an optimal HMO composition looks like, and it might be different. There might be an optimized uh, HMO composition for infants that are at a high risk because they're exposed to uh, certain pathogens in low middle income countries. And we know that some of those oligosaccharides go after those pathogens, but that might not be the optimized HMO composition for an infant uh, that receives human milk and is in the neonatal intensive care unit because uh, it is at risk of necrotizing endocolitis. So what matters here is we don't really have a target that we would call the optimized HMO composition. And we don't have enough information to say that this and this specific diet will get us to that target. So uh, still lots of research to be done there. Great, thank you. Our next question is, how do you end up finding out which infants have the protective microbiomes to protect against NEC? Yeah, great question. Uh, so the whole story about uh, microbiome in NEC, uh, I think is still out to, for debate. Uh, we just discussed this a few days ago in a, in a group. Um, we see that there is an association with a certain microbiome uh, that leads up to necrotizing enterocolitis. So there's some associations between a, what we call a favorable microbiome, a healthy microbiome maybe, and a microbiome that now leads to NEC. Uh, but you could also turn this around and say whatever leads to neck uh, changes the intestinal environment, and that's why the microbiome is different. So we still don't know exactly the causalities here. 
And uh, that is currently under active study as well to see, you know, how would the microbiome look like that is potentially protective against NEC and, uh, or is it potentially the other way around? When it comes to human oligosaccharides and NEC, uh, many people always think that, okay, this specific human oligosaccharide now leads to improving microbial community uh, uh, composition and that protects from NEC. But we really don't have any evidence for that. Uh, it seems more that this oligosaccharide has a direct effect on host cells, independent of microbes, and protects that way from necrotizing enterocolitis which may also change the microbial community. So we don't really know what comes first there and what the effect chain is. Um, again, lots of research there as well. Excellent, thank you. And our next question is, does the composition of HMOs change according to maternal and infant health status? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, and potentially, yes. So uh, we have some preliminary data that looks at um, especially on the infant health status, where Donna Giddy's group in Perth has done some very nice studies to show that uh, milk uh, immune factors, for example, are different depending on infant health. So if infant has an ear infection or something like that, all of a sudden mom's milk composition changes as well. And uh, we've looked at that for oligosaccharides as well, and it might be the case that that is actually also true for oligosaccharides. Uh, but from the maternal side, um, there are several studies that looked at maternal health and oligosaccharide composition. And um, so we see, for example, gestational diabetes, uh, maternal uh, health during pregnancy um, has an impact on human milk oligosaccharide composition. We see that uh, women with arthritis, for example, not published yet, but women with arthritis also seem to have slightly different oligosaccharide composition. Uh, we've seen that women that are HIV infected make different oligosaccharides. Um, and that, again, we don't know exactly what comes first there, but um, certainly we know more about maternal health and oligosaccharide composition than we know about infant health and oligosaccharide composition. Right, okay. And our next question is, um, formula companies have been adding human identical milk oligosaccharides to infant formulas in varying amounts. I appreciate you addressing the importance of HMOs and breast milk functioning together. And then the question is, do you see any harm in adding human identical milk oligosaccharides to infant formula without knowing appropriate dosing and combinations? Yeah, so uh, always uh, safety needs to come first, of course, uh, but maybe let's unpack this question a little bit. Uh, when the the questioner here says human identical milk oligosaccharides, uh, that's a term in the field. Uh, so when we take a look at a given oligosaccharide like 2-fucosalactose, it is indeed structurally identical to the 2-fucosalactose that we have in human milk. So if you took both out of infant formula and of human milk, just looked at 2-FL, and the same is true for other oligosaccharides, they are structurally identical. You can't tell the difference. Uh, it's just one is made in the in mom's uh, mammary gland, and the other one is made uh, either in the lab or in bioreactors or, or, or wherever they're made. But structurally, they are indeed human milk identical. Uh, now, what's not identical is that in human milk, we have 150, 200 different compounds, and there's many other bioactive components in human milk, and not just one or two different oligosaccharides. So do we see that there is um, any interaction between different oligosaccharides? 
so one oligosaccharide isn't sufficient. Yes, we do. In some uh, instances, we see that individual oligosaccharides work. Here's LNT for neck as a prime example. Uh, but in many other cases, we see that we need to have them somehow act together. Do we see there's any harm in adding these human milk oligosaccharides to infant formula without knowing exactly what the dosing is? Uh, fortunately, the concentrations currently added to human to infant formula are at the fairly low end. So even um, you know most infant formula containing uh, 0.2, 0.8, or one gram per liter of 2FL is still in the lower range of what we have in human milk. And to my knowledge, there is currently no data that shows that there is any uh, harm uh, in using these specific concentrations. Uh, do we want to increase that concentration and see what happens? Probably not in infants. I think that needs a lot of research to evaluate the safety of higher doses. Uh, but uh, at this point, I don't think we have any, any evidence that there is any harm to, uh, to adding the oligosaccharides in these low concentrations. Okay, great. And then our next question is, is it possible that oligosaccharides in infant formula require some protective shell in order to get to the gut and be effective? Hmm. Uh, not sure what is meant by protective shell necessarily, but uh, the beauty of human milk oligosaccharides is um, that they are not destroyed in the passage along the GI tract. And, you know, they are in human milk in solution. And I'm assuming that they are an infant formula in solution. Uh, so we know that they're not degraded by the low pH in the gut or by uh, enzymes from the brush water membrane or pancreas. So I'm, I don't think we need any protective shell to get them into the lower parts of the gut to be effective. Um, do we need to protect them potentially from bacteria that can chew them up uh, readily? Maybe, but maybe just uh, don't use bacteria that chew them all up right away. Um, so certainly interesting. And so this question is on 2FL and cognition, and they're wondering if mm -hmm. there is an optimal concentration for 2FL for better cognitive outcomes. Hmm. Good question. Uh, as far as I see the data, it seems to be continuous and not like there's a threshold concentration where you say that um, uh, you have to have at least this much of 2FL to reach the certain cognitive outcome. Uh, I'm not sure if we can say that necessarily. Okay, and our last question is, is there a difference in HMO composition and benefit between expressed breast milk versus donor breast milk? Yeah, also another great question. Uh, we have not seen this for oligosaccharides. Uh, there are a few studies out there that look specifically for the milk microbiome and that being different between you know, fresh milk uh, directly fed on the breast and then pumped milk uh, fed from the bottle afterwards, which makes sense. Uh, but um, uh, we don't see that for oligosaccharides. Wonderful. Thank you so much. On behalf of the Annenberg Center for Health Sciences and our presenter, thank you for participating. This ends our program.